All right, so thank you for joining this webinar. Like you had said, uh, we are going to have a nice amount of time at the end for questions and answers. And there are different ways that you can do that. There's a chat box and there's the Q&A button, uh, but we'll make sure that since we're a small group tonight, that we can definitely take your comments and questions. And we're going to begin with a question that is very basic, a question that we often forget to ask. And that is the question of how did it happen that Hanukkah became uh, a global holiday for all Jews. How did it catch on? And Hanukkah essentially is very different from other holidays because other holidays are stories about the salvation of all the Israelites, like with Pesach, or all of the Judeans, um, or all of the Jews. So even with Purim, the story is a story about Jews whose lives are at stake throughout the Persian Empire, throughout the 120 provinces of Persia. Um, and when we think about the holidays along the calendrical cycle, the calendrical year, we're talking about events that happen to the Jewish people. Either they're concentrated in the land of Israel at a time when the majority of Jews are living in Israel, or they're happening or at an earlier period to uh, all of the Israelites. But Hanukkah is very strange because Hanukkah takes place in 175 to 164 BCE at a time when the vast majority of Jews are not living in the land of Israel. Uh, these Jews are living in Eastern regions. Some of them are living in, um, in Persia, um, and that is, uh, why we have a Babylonian Talmud essentially, because we have this ancient community of Jews in Eastern regions of the Persian and then the Hellenistic Empire who never leave, even when the Babylonian exile ends, they stay for centuries, um, even millennia actually. The Persian community is a very ancient community. And we have Jews in Alexandria. Scholars estimate that we have perhaps a million Jews in Hellenistic Egypt. We have Jews, at least tens of thousands of Jews in the region of Antioch in modern day Turkey, Jews in Rome. And so by the time that we are in the, the height of the Hellenistic empire in the second century BCE, of course there are Jews in the land of Israel, probably um, a, a couple hundred thousand Jews, but the majority of Jews are not living there. So how did it come to be that the story of Hanukkah which is essentially the story of a regional clash. How did it come to resonate so rapidly with Jews worldwide? We know that the first century CE historian Josephus, in his um, Antiquities of the Jews, which is written in the 90 CE, talks about Hanukkah. People don't realize this. They think, oh, well, we have the books of the Maccabees, which is late second century BCE, and then we have the rabbinic sources, but actually, Josephus does speak about the holiday of Hanukkah in Antiquities of the Jews. He wrote this work in the mid to late 90s CE from Rome. And he talks about Hanukkah as if it were an ancient holiday, uh, which means that by the first century CE, for sure in Rome, and Josephus indicates everywhere that there are Jews, this is a holiday that is being celebrated and has been for many, many years. And so if that's the case in the first century CE, we could assume that pretty quickly Hanukkah catches on as an annual holiday globally. So what is it about Hanukkah that resonates so profoundly? So what we're going to do is look at some ancient sources about Hanukkah and talk about a transition from accounts that speak about Hanukkah as a local regional clash um, centering on the tension between the Syrian Greeks and the Judeans, and the transition from that to the depiction of a cultural clash, a clash between Hellenism and Judaism that is not limited to what is happening in the land of Israel, but it, um, it is a clash between peoples, and it is imminent and unavoidable. And we're going to begin with this text, 1 Maccabees. 1 Maccabees is preserved in the Apocrypha. You can find it in any New Revised Standard Version, NRSV. This version of the Bible, the New Revised Standard Version um, of the Bible is, um, I'm going to say the Old Testament and then I'll explain why I say that and not the Hebrew Bible. It's the Old Testament, the Apocrypha, 
and the New Testament. And all of that put together is scriptural for the Catholics. The reason why I say Old Testament and not Hebrew Bible is because the Old Testament has a different order to the books. In the Christian tradition, the books of the prophets and the writings, the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim, are ordered differently. And the end of the Old Testament um, is the end of the Book of the Twelve with Malachi. And um, so it's a different order, and that order has theological significance because the end of Malachi envisions the coming of Elijah, which segues into the coming of Jesus. And then we have these 15 books of the Apocrypha, which are not scriptural in the Jewish tradition, but like I said, they are canonical. Canonical. Now, 1 Maccabees is part of the Apocrypha, part of these 15 books that are preserved in the Catholic tradition. So we are not going to read this book as scriptural, but we are going to read it as uh, very significant historically, because this is the only eyewitness account that we have of the Hanukkah conflict. There are actually four books of the Maccabees preserved in the Apocrypha. Three and four Maccabees. It's unclear why they're called Maccabees because they're really not about the Hanukkah story at all. One Maccabees and two Maccabees are both about the Hanukkah story. And of those, only one Maccabees is an eyewitness to the story. And that uh, is, even though the author of one Maccabees is an eyewitness, he is not objective. This book is written by a political insider, probably a member or a supporter of the Hasmonean family, writing at the end of the second century BCE with the purpose of presenting the Hasmonean family as incredibly pious and courageous and just and uh, legitimate heirs to the Davidic monarchy. The so one Maccabees does not present the clash between the Syrian Greeks and the Jews as a cultural clash. In 1 Maccabees, this is a story that is deeply rooted in the fate of the temple and in Jerusalem. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt. Can you repeat that last sentence? You got cut off. Oh, sure. So 1 Maccabees does not present the conflict between the Syrian Greeks and the Jews of the land of Israel as a cultural clash. It's not about Judaism versus Hellenism. It's about a local war. So to back up and just give you some information here, the Jews of Judea have been living under Hellenism since 323 BCE. And this story of the Hasmonean Rebellion begins in 175 BCE. That means we have 150 years of the Jews in the land of Israel living under Hellenism in peace. And that already tells us something it tells us that this was not necessarily a cultural clash because the Jews are living under Hellenism without a war, essentially, for 150 years. So what's happening from 323 to 175 BCE? When Alexander the Great dies in 323 BCE, his empire split up into three main parts, North Africa, is uh, Ptolemaic Hellenistic Egypt. The Ptolemies get North Africa. The Seleucids get the northern regions to the northern land of Israel. And the Antiochids get the eastern regions in Asia. And most of the time, between 323 and 175 BCE, the Jews of the land of Israel are living under Ptolemaic rule. And that's very peaceful. The Ptolemies allow the Jews to worship in their, in their temple, to observe their ancestral law. Most of the time, Things are fine, except that the Syrian Greeks in the north, the Seleucids, want the territory of Judea. And they want it because it's right in the middle of the Hellenistic world. And it is a trade route, and it is a very desirable land because it connects all the little empires. So the Seleucids in the north go to war with the Ptolemies in the north of Egypt, and in 200 BCE, around, Judea falls under Seleucid rule, and that's when the problems begin. Because beginning with Antiochus III, uh, Antiochus III says, why have all these exceptions been made so that the Jews have not been forced to observe Hellenistic lifestyle? Why are the Jews exempt from going to the festival of Dionysus, from participating in our public uh, festivals, because there is no separation between public life 
and religious life at this time. And Antiochus III, his son is Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and he's the one in 175 BC. He says, we're done with these exemptions. The Jews have to be forced to abandon their ancestral law. Sorry, and, the, what did you say? You were done with the ex exemptions? The, uh, yeah, I don't know what's going on with that. Should I just speak louder? No, I think that the internet connection might be, might be cutting out a little piece here and there. Okay. I'm not sure why. It Sorry. looks like I have good Wi-Fi, but if it keeps happening, I can move. Okay. 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 So in 175, Antiochus for Epiphany says, we are going to no longer allow the Jews to observe their ancestral law. And this is specific to the Jews of Judea. So in 1 Maccabees, we see a regional clash between the Jews of the land of Israel, of Judea, and the Syrian Greeks. It is not depicting a clash between Hellenism and Judaism. In fact, these words do not appear in 1 Maccabees at all. The word Judaism isn't in 1 Maccabees. But even though this is a book that's about the fate of Jerusalem and the temple, there is an emphasis on the big three identifying markers of Jewish practice at this time. And those identifying markers are the observance of Shabbat, the observance of dietary law, and the observance of circumcision. So when one Maccabees opens up the story and describes the intra-Jewish debates in Judea about whether to integrate into the Syrian Greek um, empire, one Maccabees criticizes the Jews and places blame on the Jews who abandon these three identifying markers of Jewish practice. So if you look at verse 15 over here, what do these Jews do? Right? These are not Syrian Greeks, these are Jews. Um, they say, let us go and make a covenant with the Gentiles around us. And then they build a gymnasium in Jerusalem and they remove the marks of circumcision. Sounds very painful. And they abandon the holy covenant and they joined with the Gentiles and they sold themselves to do evil. So here we have reference to circumcision as being a major identifying marker of Jewish practice. And then um, we have the story of the invasion of the temple. But I want you to go down to verse 41. And again, the focus is on the bad Jews, right? The Jews who are Hellenizing, the Jews who are integrating into the Hellenistic world and abandoning their ancestral law. The focus is not on the Syrian Greeks, but on the Jews themselves of Judea. So the king writes to his, his whole kingdom that all should be one people. The Jews have never integrated because they have enjoyed these exemptions that have not forced them to become proper Greeks. And so Antiochus for Epiphany says these Jews need to give up their particular customs. And all the Gentiles accepted the command of the king. Many, even from Israel, adopted his religion. They sacrificed to idols. They proclaimed the they profaned the Sabbath. So now we have reference to Sabbath, to the Shabbat as being another major identifying marker of Jewish practice. And first we have Brit Milah, circumcision. Now we have Shabbat. And what do they do? They profane the sanctuary by bringing in, by sacrificing swine and other unclean animals. So now we have reference to the big three identifying markers of Jewish practice, but it's all within the context of temple service, right? The temple, the, the temple is defiled because these Jews are sacrificing swine, and swine is very significant. Pork is the um, pork is the most consumed meat of all animals at this time, and that, it, that becomes even more extreme in the Roman world. And Greeks and later Romans cannot fathom why Jews are so turned off. By, uh, by pig. And later, the rabbinic um, tradition reverses this um, image of Jews being grossed out by pig, and they associate, I actually wrote an article about this on the Torah.com, they associate the pig and the boar with the Roman Empire. And so sometimes the boar or the pig becomes uh, a metaphor for Rome in rabbinic literature. But in any case, the point here is that we have Brit Milah, circumcision, Shabbat, and dietary law within the context of the defilement of the temple. Now look at the end, this is the, this is the very beginning of the book. Many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. 
They chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the Holy Covenant, and they did die. Very great wrath came upon Israel. This is very interesting. There's a lot going on in this, in these three verses. First of all, we see one of the earliest, earliest allusions to martyrdom in Second Temple Jewish literature. The concept of martyrdom doesn't really exist in the Hebrew Bible. Of course, by the time the New Testament is being written in the first century, martyrdom is very important. And martyrdom, even though people think, well, that's a Christian thing, martyrdom is important in the rabbinic imagination. Of course, we talk about the 10 great martyrs in the period of the high holy days, but this is a late second century BC text alluding to martyrdom. Um, also, we have this idea that it's better to die rather than to eat unclean food. So we have these three things, right? And, um, and you have to keep them no matter what, the author of 1 Maccabee says. Dietary loss or concision Shabbat, that's what makes you a Jew. Now, he's rooting this in the temple, but it doesn't have to be. These are things that anyone, anywhere can observe. Um, and later in the rabbinic period, the rabbis will disagree with this position. They'll say, no, you absolutely should not let yourself die. It is better to eat the cheeseburger, eat the pork, right? The rabbis say, break the law. The only, there are three other things that you cannot do, right? You cannot murder. There are three other things, right? You can't have inappropriate sexual relations. Um, but when it comes to these things, the Shabbat, circumcision, dietary law, the rabbis will say in the second century CE, no, of course you could do those things if it means that you can save your life. But what's interesting about this text is that a lot of these debates are still open. That's why I love the Second Temple period, because there's so many live debates. We don't have a normative system yet where the rabbis say, okay, here's how it is, and then somehow this community of rabbis in the land of Israel and in Babylonia create this normative religion that spreads. But right now we have these open debates, and one of these debates centers on well, do we have a concept of martyrdom? And what laws will we um, commit to so much that we will embrace this idea? And so 1 Maccabees, in this sense, is not proto-rabbinic at all, because look at what he's saying about all these wonderful Jews who said, I would rather die than eat swine. And of course, this comes to a head in the story in 2 Maccabees chapter 7 with the mother of the seven sons who encourages and begs her sons to have themselves martyred rather than eat pig, pork. Okay, so 1 Maccabees does make reference to the three main identifying markers of Jewish practice, but it's very rooted in this regional clash. Now, 2 Maccabees, which is one of my most favorite, favorite books of the entire Second Temple period, takes the big three identifying markers, Shabbat, dietary, non-circumcision, and turns these issues into a global cause. And 2 Maccabees is also written at the end of the 2nd century BCE, but not by an eyewitness, by a Jew living in North Africa in modern-day Libya in a place called Cyrene. This Jew probably was never in the land of Israel. Hears about the story, maybe read 1 Maccabees, and is incredibly inspired and actively interprets this story as a story of two opposing religions, two opposing uh, cultures. And this is the earliest book to use the Greek word Judaism. The earliest book. We do not have the word Judaism in the Hebrew Bible. We do not have the word Judaism in 1 Maccabees or in any other book that precedes this book. In fact, Judaism is a very, very rare word in Second Temple Jewish literature. It only appears in 2 Maccabees and 4 Maccabees, which probably uses 2 Maccabees um, and and gets the word from 2 Maccabees. So that's actually kind of shocking when you think about the fact that um, we don't have this word and scholars debate, well, does this mean that there was no Jewish religion? Uh, da Daniel Boyarin, I don't know if you've read his work on this, takes an extreme approach and says, well, there really wasn't a fleshed out notion of Jewish religion until the Christians in their adversus Judaeus and their anti-Jewish literature by, by kind of creating their separate religion, they prop up this false category of Judaism in the third or fourth century that ends up infiltrating back into the Jewish community. Now, I, um, I, I, I don't, <laughs> that's not my approach. Um, and I think that this hinges on something philological. Can a concept exist before the word exists? Uh, and that's for a different, that's a very lofty question, and it's for a different lecture. Uh, 
and actually if you have something that you want to say about that we can absolutely discuss it in the Q&A all I'm going to say here is that I do think that there is what we would call today a Judaism but the fact that two Maccabees uses this very rare or maybe non-existent word in the second century BCE um, says something about its very creative theology for two Maccabees. This is a story about Jerusalem and it's a story about the temple, absolutely, but it's a story about an imminent and unavoidable clash between Judaism and Hellenism. And that is not in one Maccabees. And two Maccabees, even though it's not written by anyone who is in the land of Israel or, um, or is an eyewitness, two Maccabees is way more influential in terms of how we celebrate Hanukkah today, I think, than one Maccabees, because how do we learn about Hanukkah? How do, how do we teach our children about Hanukkah uh, when they're small? We, we, we teach them that, you know, in every generation, all of the, whoever they are, try to kill us. And we teach them that this is a story about Judaism surviving, right? Um, and all the Greeks trying to destroy all the Jews. Um, and, and this comes from two Maccabees. So let's look at it. And I should also add, one Maccabees is written originally in Hebrew, and two Maccabees is written originally in Greek, and I can talk about also later at the end if you're curious about how we know that. Um, so two Maccabees has beautiful Greek, and what's so deliciously ironic is that two Maccabees detests Greek culture, and yet is always using Greek literary stylistics to bash Greek culture. So it's very beautifully written. Um, and he, in the opening of the book, he says, the story of Judas Maccabeus and his brothers and the purification of the great temple and the dedication of the altar and further the wars against Antiochus Epiphanes and his son Jupiter and the appearances that came from heaven to those who fought bravely for Judaism so that few in number, they seized the whole land and pursued the barbarian hordes. Um, now, remember how I said that the rabbis used the image of the swine against Rome? They kind of lob it back at the Romans and use swine as a um, metaphor for Rome after Rome kind of, the, the Romans derived not eating pork. Something similar is happening here with this word barbarian. Uh, this is a Greek word, barbaros. It means someone who does not speak Greek. It means foreigner. Because if you didn't speak Greek, then you sounded like this, bar, 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 bar. You were not civilized. You didn't know the real language, the language um, that made you a good Greek, right? And so um, here, the barbarians are not the Jews, the Judeans, right? The non-Greek speakers, the barbarians are the Greeks. So that tells you how wonderful this author is. It's chock full of these literary ironies. Um, so yes, the story is about the temple, and it's about the altar, and it's about Jerusalem, but really, it's about the appearances from heaven for those who fought, fought bravely, not for the people of the land of Israel, but for all of Judaism as a concept. The survival of the religion, not only the survival of the people, is at stake. And so two Maccabees really changes the narrative by turning this conflict from a regional one into a cultural one. And again, this is rather early. This is the late second century BCE. So I want to take you through a few more sources here and again show you, we have the big three identifying markers of Jewish practice. We have the Sabbath mentioned. We have the, uh, the um, circumcision mentioned and dietary law. So if you look at this paragraph over here, terrible things are happening. Now this is just incredible. I think that the quality of writing for two Maccabees you know, I, I hate to be mean about one Maccabees, but the quality of writing is just phenomenal. You see this, this person is really um, highly educated in Greek stylistics. Look at this. Harsh and utterly grievous was the onslaught of evil, for the temple was filled with debauchery and reveling by the Gentiles who dallied with prostitutes and had intercourse. Oh my, that's quite vivid. And besides, brought in things for sacrifice that were unfit. People could neither keep the Sabbath, right, Shabbat, nor observe the festivals, nor so much as confess themselves to be Jews. Um, and so here we have reference to Shabbat. People have to hide their identity as Jews. And we saw that in one Maccabees too, where Jews are reversing the signs of circumcision in very complicated and often 
deadly surgery. There's a word for it in Greek when uh, you get the surgery, but I don't remember what the word is. And then look at the reference here about circumcision. Also, um, the Greek stylistics here are interesting because on the one hand, we're talking about extreme religious piety, but doing so in a way that's almost kind of sexually titillating. So look at this, at the suggestion of the people. Blah, blah, blah. Um, at the suggestion of the people of uh, Ptolemaeus, a decree was issued to the neighboring Greek cities that they should adapt the same policy towards the Jews and make them partake of the. So, so there's this initiative among the Greeks that the Jews should not be exempt from all of the public sacrifices and that those Jews who refuse to partake should be killed. One could see therefore the misery that had come upon them. For example, two women were brought in for having circumcised their children. They publicly paraded them around the city with their babies hanging at their breasts and then hurled them headlong from the wall. Others who had assembled in the caves nearby in order to observe the seventh day, Shabbat secretly, were betrayed and burned. So now we have reference to Shabbat, we have reference to circumcision in this wretching, this awful story about these women who are murdered with their babies um, for, for circumcising them. And so where he got the story, I don't know, but uh, he's really going for the jugular here. I mean, the pathos, the drama is really um, at, at a height over um, in this passage. But what's phenomenal is that, and this is kind of right in the middle of the book, it's, it's leading up to the climax of the book. It's a 2 Maccabees 7, a 2 Maccabees 6. The climax is 2 Maccabees 7, which is not in the source sheet, but that's the story of the mother with the seven sons, whom the rabbis named Chana. She is not named Chana in 2 Maccabees. But this is phenomenal. Two Maccabees offers us a theology of Jewish suffering. Now, we do not see any theology in one Maccabees. One Maccabees is written to legitimize the Hasmonean family. Look at this theology. Now, you might be feeling sad, the author of Two Maccabees says. Do you see this? Now, I urge those who read this book not to be depressed by such calamities, but to recognize that these punishments were designed not to destroy, but to discipline. In fact, it is a sign of great kindness not to let the impious alone for long, but to punish them immediately. So if you think that our suffering is a sign of divine rejection, and this becomes very important in the rabbinic period, when the Christians say Jewish suffering means the covenant with the Jews is broken. But even before the rise of Christianity, the Jews say, no, 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 our suffering has nothing to do with the broken covenant, it's actually a sign of love. For in the case of the other nations, <clears throat> the Lord waits patiently to punish them until they have reached the full measure of their sins, but he does not feel in this way with us. So he doesn't wait for us to get so bad that the punishment is horrible and debilitating and you know, permanently damaging. In order that God should not take vengeance on us afterwards when our sins have reached their height, therefore God never withdraws his mercy from us. Although he disciplines us with calamities, he does not forsake his own people. Let, let what we have said serve as a reminder. We must go on briefly with the story. And I like how there are all these interludes in the book where he says, I'm talking too much. I need to get back on track. Uh, it happens also earlier in chapter two. He says, all right, this is, I'm giving a whole introduction. I'm talking too much. Here's the story. So it's really, it's very fun when you see these little autobiographical tidbits. But the point here is that there is a theology here, and it's not a theology of the land of Israel, of the fate of Judeans, but this is about all people, and everyone who is Jewish, wherever they live, has an active stake in the story. And this is the approach that becomes incredibly influential when we get to the rabbinic period and we start to really think about Hanukkah um, as a, as a, in a rabbinic framework. I want to show you one more source from 2 Maccabees before we move on. And that is 2 Maccabees 8, right after the martyrdom of the mother and her seven sons. Um, this is really interesting. Uh, Judas, who's also called Maccabeus, and his companions secretly entered villages and summoned their kindred and enlisted those who had continued in the Jewish faith. Ento Judaismo. Um, so Judaism is really the word. It says in the Jewish faith, but the Greek word again is Judaism. Again, this is not a word that appears anywhere else in the second century BCE or earlier. And he gathers about 6,000. They pray. There's a lot of prayer in two Maccabees. But the point again is that this is a story about anyone who identifies 
with Judaism and that all Jews can identify with Judaism because to be a Jew means to keep Shabbat, to observe dietary law, and to observe circumcision. And if someone or an empire, a king, an individual, a community is going to threaten that, then every Jew is threatened. Now, there's another book in the second century BC that's contemporaneous with 1 and 2 Maccabees, and that's the Book of Judith. Now, the, the Book of Judith is very, very often confused and misread. Uh, Judith, in the early medieval period, quite late, is associated with the story of Hanukkah. And I think that she's associated with the story of Hanukkah correctly, but she's associated with the story of Hanukkah for all the wrong reasons. She becomes, I don't know, I... I I don't know why this tradition about Judith is as dominant as it is because it's not ancient. Um, but we have stories about Judith feeding Holofernes dairy, right? And that's why we have dairy food. And uh, there are all these stories circulating in the medieval period. I, I think the reason why Judith is associated with Hanukkah is much more simple than what she feeds Holofernes or the scene of her seduction. I think the fact is the book of Judith, which is contemporary with the book of Maccabees, of one Maccabees and two Maccabees, it's a satirical version of the story of Hanukkah. By which I mean, you have an individual who takes on an enemy community, Holofernes, defeats them, um, not through numbers, not through military strength, but through piety um, and cleverness and faith in God. And what is Judith's name in Hebrew? Yehudi, right? I see Bonnie mouthing it, Yehudi. Her name is the feminized version of Yehuda. Like Yehuda, she has weaponry, right? She has her beauty, she has her jewelry, she has her dress and her clothes and her crown, her tiara. Her, the, the book goes on and on about her physical attire in a similar way that we see in one Maccabees um, and the descriptions of Judah's physical attire. Um, and we also have a story in Judith that is entirely satirical because if you read the book as it's preserved in the Apocrypha, it takes place in a town called Betulia, which means virgin town. Betula means virgin in Hebrew. That is not a town that we know existed um, in ancient or modern times. And uh, the enemy king is Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian name. He is the king of Assyria. So totally different empire. His general is named Holofernes. That's a Greek name. And so I think we do um, a disservice to our understanding of the book when we read it literally. I think that we are meant to read it satirically as a subversive book that um, applauds the Hasmonean rebellion at a time when it would have been very dangerous to do so. And so with that backdrop, Look at how, if Judith is, I think, the satirical version of Judah, look at how she's described. Again, we have an emphasis on the big three identifying markers of Jewish practice. And if you look at how Judith is introduced, by the way, in 1 Maccabees chapter 8, we have a description of Judah, and we have a description of Judith in Judith chapter 8. Okay, so when Judith's, Judith's husband dies, she, um, she's very, very pious. She, they bury, her, her husband is named Menasha. They bury Menasha with his ancestors. She remains a widow for three years. She sets up a roof for herself, on the, she sets up a tent for herself on the roof of her house. So she's not even living, she's very wealthy, but she doesn't live in the comforts of her villa. She lives in a tent that's very ascetic. She doesn't uh, participate in material pleasures. She puts sackcloth around her waist. She dresses in widow's clothing. She fasts all the days of her widowhood, except the day before Shabbat and Shabbat, and except the day before holiday, uh, the, the Rosh Chodesh, the new moon, and the new moon itself. So she keeps Shabbat very, uh, very carefully. Um, likewise, we see that when she goes into Holofernes' camp, she says, I have brought all my silverware, all my dishes into the camp um, because I'm not going to eat with you. And Holofernes is so smitten with her. He says, sure, that sounds great to me. Get out your fork and knife. I am super cool with that. Um, so we have the scene where right before she leaves for the enemy camp to seduce Holofernes, she goes, she's preparing to leave Betulia, her city, to go to Holofernes to seduce him and kill him. 
and we're told she gave her maid a skin of wine and a flask of oil and filled the bag with roasted grain, dried fig cakes, and fine bread. Why is she doing this? Because she's not going to eat with Holofernes. She has to bring her own food. She even brings her own dishes. She's so from, she's so religious. Judith, second century BC, she's bringing her own dishes. Like, would you ever have thought that that early uh, Jews are, you know, they, they have their own, I don't know if she had her own meat dishes and separate milk dishes, but she's not even going to use Holofernes dishes. And then when she goes there, he commanded them to bring her in where his silver, he wants to wine her and dine her and feed her and seduce her. And Polyphernes orders his officers to set a table for her with uh, delicacies and wine. And Judas says, no, 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 no. I cannot partake of them. It will be an offense. And she's so insulting to him over and over. And he is like, sure, you're so beautiful. I don't care what you say. And the whole thing is incredibly satirical. But uh, she says, I cannot partake of them. But I will have enough with the things I brought with me. And Holofernes is like, oh, yeah, no, that makes so much sense. If your supply runs out, where can we get you more of the same? Right? He's totally on board with her uh, not eating with him. None of your people are here with us, do you think? Yeah, they're all under siege, like dying. Anyway, um, so we also have, it's not on the source sheet, but we also have a scene. Oh, no, I did put it on the source sheet. We have a scene of circumcision. So again, we have the big three. We have Shabbat. We have dietary law. And now, of course, Judith cannot observe circumcision. She is a woman. But, um, but there is an Ammonite who is part of the Assyrian camp. And when he sees Judith's piety and probably also her beauty, he's so taken with her that he, um, he helps her. And ultimately, at the end of the book, he becomes, it, we are told, that uh, he is circumcised and he joins the house of Israel remaining so to this day. And so we have, again, the big three identifying markers of Jewish practice, just like we see in 1 Maccabees and in 2 Maccabees. But in 2 Maccabees and in Judith, we have a sense that there's something much, um, something that transcends a regional clash. Um, so for 2 Maccabees, we have a clash of Judaism versus Hellenism. And for Judith, by, by making it satirical and taking it out of this particular historical moment, we're able to focus on, um, on, on a bigger story. And I think that this is why the book is so misunderstood is because what is it about? We have, we have a Babylonian king and an Assyrian empire and a Greek general. But I think that it's very effective when the author does this because now once we're kind of transcending the limitations of a particular time and a particular place, we could think about this in a very generic way as a story about the Jewish people as a whole becoming endangered. Okay, so now I want to move on to the second section of this talk. Ooh, we're a little bit short on time, but this is okay. We're, um, we're more than halfway through the sources. And in the second section, I want to look at the Greek perspective. What do the Greeks think about the Jews? What is their problem with the Jews? Why do they hate the Jews so much? Are we correct? in ascribing to what two, two Maccabees does. The Greeks will always hate the Jews and Judaism will always be opposed to Hellenism and these religions can never meet. What are the Greeks saying about the Jews? Now, one thing that I think we often forget is that the Greeks really don't have a problem with temple service. They're not criticizing the Jews about the temple. And I think that we, maybe don't realize this because as modern 21st century Jews, I think a lot of us do think sacrifice is weird. Cultic practice in the temple is weird. But in a Hellenistic context, it wasn't weird at all that the Jews had their own temple. That's fine. What made the Jews an object of derision and frustration is that they had special exemptions from participating in public life and that they stubbornly adhered to ancestral practices that the Greeks found to be either barbaric or meaningless. So I'm going to show you that the Greeks emphasized, they were very interested and perplexed by the big three identifying markers, Shabbat, circumcision, and dietary law. And so when the Greeks and then later the Romans start to talk about Jews as a whole, as a global community, they're not talking about Judeans, Jews specifically, and they're not talking about the temple. They're saying, why are these Jews so lazy that they're keeping Shabbat? Why are they so misanthropic 
that they won't have table fellowship, they won't eat with us? Why are they so barbaric that they're circumcising their sons? These are the things that drive the Greeks and later the Romans crazy. So it's not specific to the Judean Jews. And you might feel some contemporary resonance that Greeks and later the Romans are not making a distinction between the, the uh, social and geographical location of the Jews and the Jews themselves. It doesn't matter where these Jews are, they are subject to equal amounts of derision. So let's look at some sources. So Strabo is a first century BCE Greek speaking um, historian cited by Josephus. Josephus writes the first systematic defense of the Jewish religion and it is called against Appion because Appion is one of the worst anti-Semites. I don't like the word anti-Semites, but anti-Jewish people um, writing the first century BC. So Josephus writes a book to rebut what Appion is saying about the Jews, but Josephus cites many, many other Greek and Roman intellectuals and argues with them. And one of, one of the um, interesting little tidbits uh, that he cites is from Strabo. Now, Strabo is not, as, not nearly as negative about the Jews as others, but he does offer some interesting evidence about circumcision. So Josephus tells us that when Strabo talks about Aristobulus I, who is a Hasmonean king at the end of the second century, BCE, he's the father of, you might have heard, Alexander Janaeus, you might have heard of him, uh, Alexander Yanai. So um, Strabo says, Aristobulus was a kindly person and very serviceable for the Jews, and he acquired additional territory for them and brought over to them a portion of the Iturian nation, whom he joined to them by the bond of circumcision. And Aristobulus is not the first person to do this. Even the first generation of Maccabees, we read about this in one Maccabees, they conquer territory and they make <clears throat> these nations that they conquer circumcise. Um, besides the Iturians, the Edomians, the Edomites do this too. And that is where Herod comes from. Herod's lineage at the end of the first century BC is Edomian. His family was swallowed up by the Hasmonean Empire. They converted through circumcision, but the Jews never considered Herod to be one of them. They never considered the Edomians to be true Jews. There was a suspicion of them. At the same time, there was a movement in the second century BC to um, expand the Hasmonean monarchy and to do so by making the new conquests circumcised. Um, so this is one of the earliest pieces of evidence that you could, quote, convert to Judaism, which is, again, not a concept that we see in the Hebrew Bible. There's no systematic method of converting in the Hebrew Bible. Yes, there are people like Ruth and Rahab and Jethro, Jethro, who attach themselves to the Israelite community, but we don't have systematic conversion um, in the Hebrew Bible. And this is one of the earliest um, texts that say, okay, well, they, they did join themselves um, to the Jews, to the Jewish religion through circumcision. So I think it's an interesting, um, an interesting point of evidence. But Appion is one of the first to uh, really deride the Jews um, for circumcision. He's not one of the first, but he's maybe one of the strongest. So this is Josephus, who says, the remaining counts in Appion's indictment of the Jews had better perhaps be unanswered, so that Appion might be left to act as his own and his countrymen's accuser. He denounces the Jews for sacrificing domestic animals, for not eating pork, and he derides the practice of circumcision. So Appion is focusing not on the Jews specific to the land of Israel or specific to the temple, but the Jews who are keeping dietary practice and, um, and observing the Brit Amila. Now we have this kind of funny little passage from Horace. Um, I'm not sure, I, I guess we'll do it. I don't really understand it to be honest. So Horace um, is a satirist in the first century BCE. He's writing in Latin. This is not cited by Josephus. I found this source in this two-volume work. Menachem Stern wrote um, this two-volume work called Greek and Latin Authors on Jews and Judaism. And um, the book is what it sounds. Um, Menachem Stern cited hundreds and hundreds of Greek and Latin writers from the fifth century BC all the way through the third or fourth century CE. Um, and it, this is a collated work. So this is out of context, 
But in one of Horace's uh, sermons, but really it's satirical, he has this little vignette, this little story of he's hanging out with a friend and he really wants to get out of this little play date. He wants to abandon his friend. Whoever his friend is, he's very annoying. So Horace says, while he is thus running on, lo, there comes up Aristius Fuscus, a dear friend of mine, who knew the fellow right well. So he's walking with someone that he's trying to get rid of, and he sees his friend Aristius. So we halt. Whence come you? Whither go you? Aristius asks and answers. I begin to twitch his cloak and squeeze his arms. In other words, Horace is trying to convey to Aristius, can you help me out? I need to lose this guy. I need to ghost my friend. He's making me crazy. So I begin to give signs to Aristius, nodding and winking hard for him to save me. The cruel joker laughed, pretending not to understand. Aristius is like, I'm gonna let my friend suffer with this loser that they, they're trying to get rid of. I grew hot with anger. Surely you said there was something you wanted to tell me in private, Horace says to Aristius. Don't you wanna tell me something so we can leave our other friend? I mind it well, but I'll tell you at a better time, Aristius says. Today is the 30th day, a Sabbath. Would you affront the circumcised Jews? Okay, what the heck is going on? Oh, and then it's funny. Horace says, I have no scruple. So in other words, Horace is saying, we got to ghost our friend. There's a third person. We don't want to hang out with him. He's trying to get Aristius to say, Horace, I have to talk to you in private. Aristius says, no, I'm not going to talk business with you today because that would be an insult to the Jews because today is Shabbat. Now, since he says today is the 30th day, this probably is Rosh Chodesh, maybe it's the new, the new moon, but the, what Horace says, because, you know, Horace is not an expert Jew, uh, this is what we have in the Latin. Today is the 30th day, a Sabbath, would you affront the circumcised Jews? Now, of course, Aristius is totally playing with Horace. You think Aristius gives a, you know what, about affronting the circumcised Jews? No, not at all. That's why he calls them the circumcised Jews, but he's saying, I can't talk business with you now, because he, he's teasing and kind of torturing Horace because he's pretending not to pick up on Horace's um, insinuations. So Arcee says, I can't talk business with you because the Jews don't do business today. And so uh, God forbid we should insult them. And Horace is like, I'm okay insulting them. I have no scruple. So this is also an interesting um, reference to circumcision and Shabbat. And I also want to point you to one last source, and this is Seneca, first century C because here we get a really interesting accusation. Remember Seneca, he, um, I think he was a tutor to Nero and then he committed suicide. Uh, he had a falling out with Nero, but a very important um, um, essayist and intellectual and does not like the Jews. And here he says, you know why the Jews keep Shabbat? Excuse me. You know why the Jews keep Shabbat? Because they're so lazy and they just don't want to work one seventh of the time. Along with other superstitions of the civil theology, Seneca censures the sacred institutions of the Jews. I think this is cited in Josephus, especially Shabbat. He declares that their practice is inexpedient because by introducing one day of unrest in every seven, they lose in idleness almost a seventh of their life. So the Jews are basically asleep one seventh of the time. Um, they're lazy. But when speaking of the Jews, he says, meanwhile, the customs of this accursed race have gained such influence that they are now received throughout the world. When I read this, I had like a, I was startled because uh, to me, it's just so resonant. I mean, does that sound familiar? What are people saying today about Jewish influence? Uh, Seneca in the first century said Jews have too much influence. This accursed race somehow has everyone wrapped around their finger. The vanquished have given laws to their victors. So the vanquished being the Jews, the Jews should be below us. The vanquished Jews are telling their victors what to do. Um, and so they have this kind of control that Seneca deeply, deeply resents. And this could also be an allusion to a term that we see in the New Testament called the God-fearers, which is a reference to Romans who do not convert to Judaism, but they take on Shabbat. And it's unclear to scholars why they take on <clears throat> the Sabbath or they take on other aspects of Jewish practice, but they do not fully convert. And so I think Seneca is alluding to the fact that there are high-ranking Romans who are interested in Judaism and respectful of Judaism and maybe even observing Shabbat. And Seneca says, well, that is just ridiculous. Okay, why am I citing all of this? To say that <clears throat> in one Maccabees and two Maccabees and Judith, we have these aspects of um, Jewish practice, circumcision, dietary law, and Shabbat. 
only in one Maccabees, in the eyewitness account of the Hasmonean Rebellion, is this is the story of the Hasmonean Rebellion of Hanukkah rooted in the fate of this local regional community that comes into conflict with its host empire. But with two Maccabees, we have a totally different interpretation of the story. And that's a story that it's, this is a clash between Hellenism and Judaism, between two religions. Now, what the Greeks and the Romans do is they don't identify Jews based on their devotion to the land of Israel. They identify Jews based on how Jews separate themselves from broader society. And all of these um, markers of Jewish identity, they become markers of diasporan identity. Because if you're living outside the land of Israel, you are not going to go regularly to the temple. Yes. Some Jews made the pilgrimage, but for the most part, the Jewish religion, the Jewish global population remained coagulated and cohesive because of these practices, because of circumcision, dietary law, and Shabbat, and also because they came together regularly to read their scriptures in what would become the synagogue. And so the Greeks viewed Judaism as distinct wherever Jews are, not specific to Judea, because of these diasporan practices. Um, and these three practices become the hill that the Jews are willing to die on, at least in the second temple period. Uh, later on, as I said, the rabbis say, no, you should violate these practices if uh, it means saving your life. Um, but I, I wanna end by saying that the story speaks to diasporan Jews because the Syrian Greeks, but then later all Greeks and all Romans are attacking these practices, are not attacking Judean Jews specifically. And by the first century, Jews everywhere feel a responsibility of participating in a collective fate. And there's a very interesting example of how this plays out practically. After the temple falls in 70 CE, this is not on your source sheet, the temple falls and Life goes on, right? The, the war actually doesn't end until 73 CE because um, I'm sure you've heard of the community at Masada. There are some strongholds of Jews who will not surrender to Rome. But what happens right after the war? The Romans say, we're going to have a triumphal march. We're going to march all the contents of the temple through the streets of Rome. We're going to march all the Jewish captives, the slaves. And it's very bizarre because Rome has this triumph as if they've conquered a foreign territory. You only have a triumph when you conquer a foreign territory, not when you quell something that's right in the middle of your kingdom, but they're always treating Judea like it's something outside. But then what does the Flavian family do? First we have Vespasian and then his son Titus and then Domitian. So Titus says, okay, we're going to have Fiscus Judaicus. We're going to tax every Jew. Every Jew is going to be punished for what happened in Judea because every Jew is collectively responsible for what another Jew does, even if that Jew is thousands of miles away. But Titus says, we're going to tax every observant Jew. And how do you determine whether someone's observant? Well, whether they keep Shabbat, dietary law, circumcision, right? But Domitian says, Domitian is Titus's brother who becomes emperor when Titus dies. Domitian says, no, no, no. We're not just going to, to levy a tax on every practicing Jew we're going to levy a tax on every Jew. So we're going to find out if you're a Jew, whether you're assimilated or not, and you're going to pay this tax. And the Roman historian Suetonius talks about how he saw as a child in the 70 CE, a Jew being stripped of his clothes in public in the streets of Rome by a Roman general to see whether he was circumcised. So it's a horrific image. And I think it's also an image, again, that resonates with other horrific images from more recent times, um, but can you imagine in the streets of Rome being stripped of your clothes because um, whether you're practicing now as a Jew or not, if you are circumcised because your parents circumcised you when you were a little, little baby, you are considered Jewish. And so this, um, what the Greeks and later the Romans do to the Jews, and I think in this sense, Daniel Bayarin is right. He says the Christians do this to Jews, but I think it's even the Romans by treating the Jews as a population of Jews that can be fully observant or fully identified as Jews, whether or not they're in Judea, whether or not they're connected to Jerusalem and its temple, whether or not they're, um, they're loyal to the leadership of the priests, um, 
this kind of democratizes the Jewish experience in such a way that the Jews came to believe that wherever they were, they had an equal stake um, in the survival of the Jewish people. And so that Jewish practice becomes one that is equally accessible in the diaspora, uh, whether you're in the diaspora or in Judea. And so Hanukkah becomes um, the conduit for this kind of expression that as a collective, we are all uh, participants in this story, whether we were there or not, whether we uh, lived in Judea or not, because this is a story in which we all have a deeply personal stake. When the Syrian Greeks say to the Judeans, you cannot keep Shabbat dietary circumcision, well, that can happen to any Jew. It can happen in Alexandria, it can happen in Rome, it can happen in Antioch, and the salvation of the Jews is not just a sign of divine favor for those Jews in Jerusalem, it's a sign of God's divine, of God's favor of all Jews wherever they are. And so the story of Hanukkah as it is told through two Maccabees, really brings um, the collective imagination of the Jews together um, in a very resonant way. And so I think that this is a story, even if it's less what we would call um, historic, historically accurate, although, you know, I, I don't like that phrase, but even if it's not an eyewitness account, the book of two Maccabees is far more influential in terms of how we understand Hanukkah than the book of one Maccabees. And so uh, it's just about eight o'clock. So I want to, uh, since we're a small group, I want to make sure that you all have time for comments, for questions. Um, there might be something that I said 45 minutes ago that you want me to say more on. So uh, I think right now, even if you're okay with it, we can uh, turn this more into a, a conversation. I think you can click on chat. And then you could write in your question. So if anybody wants to type in the question, click on chat and then I'll see it and then I'll answer it. We only have two people, right? Some people left. That's okay. Savani says, I know you discussed this in your class last summer, but I'm a little confused with the status of the Apocrypha and how, though it didn't make it into the scriptures, it so influenced the rabbinic thought. It's a great question. Um, I'm not sure that it did influence rabbinic thought. We have a lot of books in the Apocrypha. Some of these books do not, as you know, all of these books do not make it into the Hebrew Bible as a canon, but some of them are cited as authoritative by the rabbi. So for example, you might have heard of Ben Sira. The wisdom of Ben Sira is cited as authoritative by the rabbis, but ultimately it is not, um, it is not canonized. Uh, the rabbis sometimes cite the book of Enoch, which is also not canonized. Um, that's an, not even in the Apocrypha. But so the, the early rabbis do cite books as authoritative that do not end up being um, canonical. Um, I don't think, and they also cite Tobit. So they definitely have some awareness of at least some of these books. I don't think that the rabbis are walking around reading two Maccabees. It could be that one Maccabees was in circulation in Hebrew in the rabbinic period. <clears throat> it derives from the land of Israel, so it could easily have been accessible. Um, two Maccabees, I don't think so. Um, but traditions circulate orally. So if you look up two Maccabees seven and you read the story of the mother of the seven sons, this is a story that had many iterations in the ancient world. Probably the oldest one is in two Maccabees chapter seven. But by the time the rabbis talk about Hannah as the mother of the seven sons, there isn't just one story before that. It's not just two Maccabees seven. We know that uh, Christians are retelling the story um, in Christologized ways. And so these traditions circulate and they evolve and they're written down in different various forms. So if the rabbis had such a tradition, it doesn't mean that they're reading two Maccabees. And I, I doubt that they were. Um, you know, this is a diasporan book written in very high level Greek. So I, I would assume that they're not, um, they're not reading this book. Yeah, so I wouldn't say as a whole, that they're influenced by the Apocrypha, but there are parts of the Apocrypha that the rabbis um, have access to, and particularly those books that are originally written in Hebrew, like Ben Sira, like 1 Maccabees. Oh, I'm specifically referring to the discussion of martyrdom. That, so did my answer help you? Okay, okay, right, because, well, but the thing is, right, with martyrdom, the rabbis do take a different approach. Um, and one Maccabees and two Maccabees also have different approaches to martyrdom, where two Maccabees seems to be very pro-martyrdom, and one Maccabees is actually quite anti-martyrdom. And one Maccabee says, you have to break Shabbat 
and pick up arms. You have to, because there were Jews who were being massacred on the Sabbath because they wouldn't fight on the Sabbath. And Judah in one Maccabee says, no, violate the Sabbath. Don't let yourself be a martyr. So one Maccabees, martyrdom is not a good thing. Two Maccabees, it's like the best thing you could possibly do. But again, that's really a fun detail because it tells you these issues are live debates in the second temple period in a way that you don't see such um, kind of dialogic debate. Well, I mean, it's all over rabbinic literature, dialogic debate, but when it comes to martyrdom, um, <clears throat> you, you don't see this kind of tension, I think, in rabbinic sources. Where do you think that shift happened or why that shift happened from martyrdom being like the thing that you, you would want to do versus what, I mean, something that you would never want to do. And then, you know, it's like the Holy grail. Yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, overall, I would say the rabbis say avoid martyrdom unless you, you know, don't seek it out. I think in general, you know, of course you should choose to die rather than do these horrible things like murder. Um, but in general, I don't view, and again, it's very hard to say the rabbis X, the rabbis Y, because generalizations like that usually don't work. But um, I think in general, this is part of a rabbinic theology. This is what Ruven Kimmelman calls the rabbinic theology of the physical, to really um, be grounded in a system of halakha that uh, allows you to thrive in the physical world rather than be so uh, withdrawn from the physical world, which is what many Christians are doing. And, Kind of living such an uh, such an ascetic life that the physical world becomes an oppositional binary to the spiritual world. That the rabbis don't do that. So it could be a response to Christianity and the emphasis on martyrdom, but I don't know. I yeah, binaries are always problematic. So. Uh, can I ask another question? Um, you had mentioned before that there are three the, the the three things that the Jews were being singled out for pretty much throughout throughout the the sources was uh, was circumcision and Shabbat and and kosher. Um, when did uh, it sounds to me like it's much more social? And so when did it shift to like religious, where they're destroy, destroying the temple? They're um, basically looking at Jews as a religion as opposed to a a cultural culturally different group yeah that's a really interesting question um i mean i don't know that w when we look at what the greeks and the romans are saying about the jews i'm not saying that the highest intellectual greek and roman communities are infatuated with the jews but their issues are less theological than when you enter into the early christian period and the adversos eudaios literature that you get from the church fathers in the second, third, and fourth centuries is really, um, really something new, I think. So uh, what do the Greeks have to say about the Jews? Well, the Jews are, like you said, anti-social, misanthropic, anti-human. That's what the word means. Uh, you, got, you got cut off. The Jews are, the Jews are what? It might, it might be my internet. I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, misanthropic. They're anti-people because they're not participants in public life. And these special exemptions create incredible res resentment. Why don't you want to be a good Greek? Why don't you want to be a fully integrated Roman? Why must you be um, so antisocial? Now, um, whereas in Greek literature, you see this term misanthropia kind of thrown around a lot when it comes to the Jews, uh, in Latin Roman literature, you see um, superstitio. So the Romans have the legitimate religio, they have the legitimate religion, and Jews have the superstition. So the Jews are, but again, I think it has to do with their separating themselves um, to do things that seem very antiquated and irrational to the Greeks and the Romans. And then with the rise of early Christianity, and I think starting with Justin Martyr and later Church Fathers, the theological vitriol becomes um, just really, really elevated. Uh, again, in a way, I think you're right. I think there, it, it's not really comparable. And again, there is no love fest. You know, the, the Greeks and the Romans write very not nice things about the Jews, but, um, but it's mostly about their antisocial behavior. Yeah. Thanks. And I actually, I mean, I'll add to that, that 
the whole early Christian theology is kind of anti-temple in a way that the Romans aren't, right? Because the Christians say that Jesus is a replacement, um, for, right? Temple service is no longer necessary as mm -hmm. long as it's through Christ. So that's not just a rejection of the Jewish people. That's a rejection of Roman life. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for participating in this webinar. And we had a little group tonight, but hopefully many will listen to the recording. I hope so too. Uh, I don't know if anybody else is, uh, uh, has any other questions, but if, if you would like to sign off, we can sign off now and I'll, I'll make sure to send the recording link to everybody who, who signed up for the webinar so you can look at it another time or yeah, if anybody, if anybody wants me to send them the source sheet, I'm very happy to. That would um, be great, actually, if you could send it to me. That'd be awesome. Oh, yeah, sure, I'll send it to you. Great, I'm happy okay. to do that. Thanks, and then I can send it, I can, when we post it online, I can make sure to include it in the emails or include it on the website. Perfect. Okay. Perfect. Well, Excellent. happy Monica, everybody. Yeah, thank you, and thank you for coming out. Thank you for, for talking, for getting a lecture so late at night. <laughs> It's an hour earlier over here in Chicago. That's true. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Well, happy Hanukkah. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.